Hi, my name's Harry, and welcome to another episode of Passing Through a Vegan Door. First of all, I just want to say thank you. Our first episode of our first ever podcast got over 40 downloads in the first 24 hours for a brand new audio-only podcast from a nobody about veganism. That's so cool. That's amazing. And it's continued to get listens every day since. I've received so many messages of people saying that they've listened to the episode and that they really liked it and they enjoyed it, but more importantly, they benefited from it in some way, whether it's support in justifying the changes that they've made in their own life, or even just that they've learned something. It took me a while to realize that we don't know everything. And you get to a certain age and it's like, okay, I'm an adult and now I know everything. And every decision I make is the right one because my brain has developed to the optimal capacity and that means I cannot make mistakes. And unfortunately, that's not the case. And when I realized in my early 20s that you will continue to learn things um, forever, I made peace with that. And when you do that, you grow as a person. The support of people is so amazing. It's easy to become frustrated at the world with you know, so much hate and misery and, and misery sells in the media. That's, that's why we feed off of that because that's what's shoved down our throats every day. You know, happiness doesn't sell, unfortunately. So the media paints a picture of the world under a gray cloud and, you know, that, that, that rubs off on us and it makes us feel rubbish. But it's sometimes nice to see that people are nice and empathetic and kind. And, you know, for example, I thought this way for a long time. And then this year I broke my leg. The amount of help that I received, you know, not just from my friends and family, but from random strangers, from the medics helping me at the venue and, and picking me up and, and getting me onto a onto a bed to the uber drivers who like <laughs> carried me um from place to place people at the hospital who for that moment it seems like you are the most important person in the world and they don't get paid enough to do that so you can tell that it's 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 genuine and just before i broke my leg i ran my first marathon we received a lot of donations from so many people and the amount of support on, on the day, just in general from that entire process, seeing that kind of support and generosity, it, it really kind of starts to get rid of that gray cloud that that we're fed. And all that support from all those people came at probably my lowest point, you know, in my life. And it's amazing and wholesome and, you know, sometimes necessary to, to be reminded of that. And I know, you know, you get people who say, oh, you're only 24, you know, but <laughs> I've only been alive for 24 years. So it's all I have to experience. And 
in those experiences, that was the worst. You know, just because I haven't lived 50 years, it doesn't mean that the experiences that I have hold less value. For me, I was experiencing one of the lowest points in my life and you can't compare that to another life because everyone has their own life and their own experiences. The marathon for me was, you know, a mental marathon. You know, you can learn and you can practice how to run really quickly or for really long distances. You know, you can, you can, you can learn how to do anything, but to train your mind to behave in a certain way is something that you have to learn yourself because everyone is different. Tackling veganism can be a bigger thing on the mind than physical change. My friend Callum mentioned to me after listening to my first episode of the podcast how people, including himself, struggle with the mental strength to physically make the the changes. And I get that. It's it's you know it's a mindset, it's a it's a mental challenge to change how you think and and then turn that into how you act. The thing to remember is it's not like going to the gym where you can you can have a rest day or a diet where you can skip a meal, you know, have a cheat meal. Because there is no cheat meal in veganism because it's not a diet even though on the face of it it looks like it. And that's because there's a victim. Now I'm not perfect, you know, my mental ability does hit a point where you can't be the best person or even just the person you want to be or how you want to behave or, or be seen in society. I sometimes flush a non-flushable wipe down the toilet because the thought of walking all the way to the kitchen to put it in the bin because I don't have a bin in the bathroom, even though I keep saying that I should, but the thought of going to Wilco's and buying another plastic bin stresses me out. But then I'll put a tin of beans in the regular bin instead of washing it out and recycling it because sometimes the thought of putting the time and effort into doing that puts a strain on my mental abilities for some reason. I don't know. It's the human brain. This isn't a psychology podcast that I I don't have the answers, unfortunately, but it's important to be aware of it. And, you know, it's important to remember that we aren't perfect. People struggle, people make mistakes, so we shouldn't criticize mistakes. It's like, um, say you've got two people who've taken the same exam and person A who gets 20 questions right, but gets 80 questions wrong. And person B gets 99 questions right and one question wrong. In that instance, you wouldn't criticize person B for getting a question wrong. You would praise them for getting everything almost right. But in society, especially in veganism, you know, on a daily basis, you try and choose the better of two evils and then you get criticized for one mistake that you make. Oh, you drove here instead of taking the bus. Or you've just bought something that's not 100% recyclable. You're just as bad as me. And, you know, we shouldn't do that. When people are doing good things, it's holding up a mirror to yourself. And it shows you that maybe you're not trying to be as good as you should be. 
And that's where criticism likes to live. You know, but in, in, in those instances, not opting for the most sustainable way to get to work, it's not the end of the world because there's not a victim in that process. When we have a cheat meal and eat something that has come from an animal, an animal has lost its life. Hopefully, we can find a way to open the door to simplifying veganism. Approaching a topic like exploiting animals, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure whether to go uh, light-hearted or not. You know, it needs to be digestible to those, you know, who, who aren't familiar with the subject um, or maybe sensitive to, to the idea of exploiting animals. But also it needs to be informative in a way that, that, that kind of gets the point across that, yeah, that this is a serious thing and we should talk about it. You know, it's how to go about it. It's, it's like if you've watched... Um, if you've watched Don't Look Up on Netflix and there's that scene where those news reporters are trying to make light of a really serious situation where Leonardo DiCaprio is saying, the world is going to end and and they're trying to be all happy. But when you do that, you, you, you take away the severity of it. But at the same time, you can't get through to people being angry. It's a difficult one. You know, everyone's different. And if you've thought a certain way for so long, it can be difficult to see otherwise, like, you know, like a cult or something, or you've experienced an abusive relationship, you know, and, and you and you see it from an outside perspective of, why doesn't he just leave her? She beats him every night. Why, why does he stay with her? But when you're in that situation, it can be difficult to, to visualize any alternative where that's not your reality, you know, but it is, it is important to talk about. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to focus on farm animals specifically at first, because, you know, if you're new to veganism, it's important to be aware of how we treat farm animals. But also, I think that's where a lot of the day-to-day -day exploitation takes place. You know, the way we treat them isn't right. And it's important to know where your food comes from. That doesn't necessarily apply just to veganism because I don't know where my bananas come from that are in the cupboard. You know, I've, I've not got a clue. It, it could be from any country. It's not from this country. Um, but that's just what comes with globalization. You know, the, the, the world has become so connected. Um, you know, distribution has become easier than ever. You know, it's difficult. No, I don't think anyone knows where anything comes from really unless you're part of the 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 chain of distribution you know you order something online and it just shows up in your door unless you delivered that or made it you've not got a clue and you know when you're at a restaurant and something shows up on your plate you've no idea how they made that where they've got the things from it just shows up on your plate and that's it but the difference is with animal agriculture and buying animal products is that there's a victim and if you think about it, in lots of other scenarios, we don't like to buy into something where there's been a victim. It's like when you go and buy a new dress and you don't want to buy it if it's the result of slave labor. Or if you go to buy an engagement ring, you don't want to buy a blood diamond because there's been a victim. And it's the exact same if we buy something that's come from an animal. 
Exploitation also exists in many other forms in our world, um, such as entertainment and zoos and aquariums and pets and hunting and fashion and cosmetics. If you've ever seen a blackfish, uh, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's still on Netflix. It's that one where they keep their massive killer whales in them tiny tanks in Florida. Um, and, and you see like the trainers at the end of the documentary say, oh, I always knew it was wrong. Yeah, you say that now because you've got your head ripped off. You didn't think it was wrong when you were riding blackfish for money, did you? No. I guess hindsight is twenty twenty. Sarah. Um as well when you see them random documentaries from America where they've got like chimpanzees as pets. And you see them at the end of the documentary with like one arm hanging off and they're like, Oh, you know, I was really surprised, you know. Derek was was always a, a really nice chimpanzee. Yeah, because he's a wild animal. You're crazy. We kill over 70 billion animals every year. Okay, 70... Let's just sit on that number for a minute. How crazy is that number? If we killed humans at that same rate, we would be wiped out by the end of the month. I know it's nice to think of the world as a David Attenborough documentary. Thinking about all those amazing, beautiful animals roaming free and just living the life. Oh, so good. And, you know, I love a David Attenborough documentary as much as the next person. But unfortunately, that world is becoming smaller and smaller. Wild mammals make up just 4% of all the mammals in the world. Farm mammals make up 60% of those mammals, 70% of all birds are chickens or other poultry, and 36% of mammals are humans. <laughs> you know, to me, that's a very scary ratio, and if we continue down the path that we're going down, those numbers are going to get even crazier. We're going to talk about how your food gets on your plate. We're going to talk about the general exploitation of these animals and discuss the life stages of these animals to hopefully show that the, the empathy and the love that you feel towards your pets or the animals that you see at the zoo or the animals on your favourite David Attenborough documentary can be transferred to the animals that you eat. I'm going to try my very, very best to keep it focused on the animals themselves, but it's difficult not to discuss other topics, uh, you know, like the environment and health and society, because they're all connected, but hopefully I'll be able to talk about them in future episodes. First on the menu... We have a cow. Let's call her Rosie. Rosie the cow. Now, we're going to give Rosie a name because in the real world, cows don't get names. They get a number tagged through their ear. 
How crazy is that getting tagged through your ear? And we do that because there's so many cows, it'll take too much time to name them all. It's easier just to give them a number. So Rosie would be cow 3001. We also don't give them names because a name gives way to personality, to empathy, and to guilt. And we want to avoid guilt because if we feel guilty for these animals, then we can't kill them and sell them. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is a cow, as well as a lot of the other animals that I'll talk about, are sentient beings. Now, a sentient being is someone or something that experiences emotion, like happiness and joy, but also negative emotions like anger and pain and sadness. We are sentient beings, and for a very long time we thought we were the only sentient beings but through years of research, we found out that lots of other animals are sentient beings. We also thought that humans were the only ones that were able to make tools. But it wasn't until Jane Goodall uh, went to Africa in the 1960s and observed chimpanzees and found that they also use tools. They like, um, they, they use sticks as like spoons to get insects from inside rocks and stuff. It's cool. We've also found out that other animals are self-aware. And the way that we found that out um, is a, is a self-aware test. So you put a mark on an animal's head, you know, like a, like a mark of paint or something, and you place a mirror in front of them. And if they reach to their head where the mark is, when they see their reflection, they're self-aware because they think, what's that on my head? The animal agriculture business was a lot easier to run and promote when we weren't aware that these animals were like us. They had feelings. And I think it's a lot harder for us to consider the animal agriculture business as moral and justified when we become aware that these animals that we kill have emotions that are similar to our own. I saw um, I saw a stupid advert the other day. Uh, I don't know why it was suggested to me on Facebook. I think the Facebook gods are messing with my algorithm just to taunt me. Um, it was uh, it was an advert for Cathedral City Cheese, and it was basically a video of a cow, and it was kind of like moving up and down, and he had a smile on his face, and it said, "We put our cows." on waterbeds, because our farmers know that a happy cow makes great cheese. I mean, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But it just, it's so frustrating that, you know, it, and it's its dangerous to make things like that because people will believe it. It's like if I've got Graham on death row, okay, and we go to Graham, we say, Graham, we're going to kill you today. We're going to put you in that chair and we're going to shove a million volts down you until you're fried from the inside. But don't worry, I've got you this memory foam cushion to sit on. Don't say we don't treat you. 
Can you kill humanely? I don't think so. It's like if I went to rescue a dog and I brought the dog home and we had a great day. Oh, we had an amazing day. We went for a really long walk. Uh, he had lots of treats, you know, and lots of playtime. And oh, it was the, it was probably the best day of his life. Okay. And then at the end of the day, I shoot him in the head. He's had a good day. He's had a, he's had a good life. But now he's dead. Does his quality of life justify me ending it? Do you have the right to kill someone? if they don't consent to it. More importantly, who doesn't have a voice to consent with. You might think that story of the dog is quite extreme, but you only think it's extreme because you've accepted the norm in our society that we are above animals. And because of that, we can choose the value each animal has to us. We'll happily cut the head off a cow, but we would never dare do that to our lovely dog, Chi-Chi. It's also easy to think that cows might have a nice life, even if you do agree with killing them at the end of it. Because you drive down the M6 and you see all them beautiful fields with all them cows in the sunshine, having a lovely time with all their friends, not a care in the world, and you're thinking, oh, I wish I had that life. I've got to go to work on Monday and deal with all those emails that I've been avoiding all week. But look at that cow. Not a cur in the world. If every cow in the world lived like that, with all that space, we wouldn't have room to stretch our arms above our head. There'd be no room. We currently have on the planet right now about 1.5 billion cows because we've bred them into the world so we can eat them. Now, think about how big a cow is, right? A cow takes up a lot of space. It's not economically viable to give a cow that much space. That's why only a very small percentage of cows live in big fields. Over 95% of all cows live in factories, in very, very cramped conditions. But we don't see that, it's behind closed doors. So when we see a cow on a field having a nice life, it can relieve some of the guilt when we eat them. But unfortunately, the majority of cows live in factories and are factory farmed along with a lot of other animals. Just to give you an example, a growing trend in the UK at the minute are these American style mega farms and is basically a big factory. And we currently have 800 US style mega farms in the UK. These mega farms can hold 1.7 million chickens, 23,000 pigs, and 3,000 cows. Think Think about how big a cow is. And that's in each factory. That's the kind of life that these animals are living. Okay, let's get back to Rosie. Now, Rosie's life isn't going to be very rosy, unfortunately. So Rosie is a multi-purpose cow because we use her flesh as meat and we eat it or we take her milk and we drink it and we use other parts of her like her skin for things like leather. So 
Rosie will be artificially inseminated when she's about two years old. And what that involves is we get sperm from a male cow and we shove it in her vagina. You might have seen this on like a Yorkshire vet program where you can only see half of the Yorkshire vet because the other half is up, is inside a cow. Okay. Boom. She's artificially inseminated. She's now pregnant. Now, a cow is the same as a human in that she'll be pregnant for nine months. So during that time, she's not much used to us. You know, she's kind of in the way a little bit. So we'll just keep her, you know, behind a cage in the corner. Nine months later, boom, she has a baby, Rosie Jr. Now with humans, when a woman has a baby, she's then able to produce milk to feed her newborn baby. And it's the exact same thing with cows. So Rosie will now be able to produce milk from her udders to feed her baby. But instead, what happens is we take away the baby and we steal the milk for ourselves and then we sell it. Once we've taken all the milk that we can, we artificially inseminate her again. She's pregnant again for nine months and that cycle continues until she can no longer produce calves. She can only do that about five or six times in her life. And then once she can't produce calves anymore, she's no longer economically viable to be kept alive. So we shoot her around six years old, when a cow can usually live around 20 or 30 years. If Rosie Jr. is a girl, yes, that means that we can then artificially inseminate her when she's two, and steal her milk, and then kill her. But if Rosie Jr. is a boy, they have no use in the dairy industry because a boy, same as humans, we can't produce milk. So as soon as the male calf is born, we shoot and kill them and sell them for cheap beef. I read something the other day that said, you shouldn't be drinking cow's milk for the same reason that if you needed a blood transfusion, I wouldn't give you cow's blood. It's not meant for a human. Which is true. The purpose of cow's milk is to make a baby calf really, really big, really, really quickly. But growing up, we just think, cows are like these milk machines. That's where milk comes from. It's really distressing that that's what we learn. No one told us that they're just like any other mammal. You know, we could use pig milk. We could use chimpanzee milk, but we don't. We use cow's milk and we don't really think about it that much. We just take milk from cows and that's it. We also change the name from cow to beef. You know, if the menu at Miller and Carter said, baby calf called Rosie Jr. killed at two with a shotgun while her mother watched, served with a lettuce wedge. <laughs> You'd think twice, but when we invent a new word to disguise the origin of the product, it masks the exploitation and relieves your guilt. And the business continues. Sentient beings such as cows feel pain when we kill them and turn them into food. You know, and it'd be really cool if we didn't cause pain and suffering to another when we go out for food with our friends or family or on a first date at a restaurant. So when there's a crazy vegan 
stood outside of Miller and Carter in town protesting. Instead of thinking, oh, for God's sake, Jeffrey, can you believe him? Making all that racket while I'm trying to eat my dead cow on a plate. Can you believe him? He's out of order. Let me eat my cow in peace. Maybe listen to them next time because they might have something important to say. In part two, we'll look at some of our other favourite farmyard animals. Thanks for listening. Sacrifice something to give something up. The brave monk of the battlefields, Mr. Wife and Anna.